This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Tom Davis, a national expert in value-based healthcare delivery and full-risk insurance contracting. Dr. Davis, he's been a family physician for over 25 years. He's an angel investor. He's a founder of six companies, a co-founder of eight, and he successfully managed thousands of patients under Medicare Advantage and other value-based care programs. One of the things that really amazed me about Dr. Davis's background is that he was an early pioneer in value-based care. He founded Patients First Healthcare of Washington, Missouri, just a rural physician practice. They took full risk in Medicare Advantage, an early adopter, and they sold their practice for $132 million. So this is a real success story and how you go about executing on a playbook to serve patients and full risk Medicare Advantage and reap the benefits of that in terms of physician satisfaction, doing the right thing with relationships. Daniel, I was real excited to learn about that story. And you know, I'm sure our listeners today are really going to learn a lot from the conversation we had today with Dr. Tom Davis. Definitely, Eric. I couldn't agree more. It's such an amazing conversation and so much of what was discussed that's the really important part. And I just want to call this out from the beginning is the emphasis on the relationship between the physician and the patient. And that's where value really happens. Daniel, I think that's well stated. And that was certainly my takeaway as well. And I, I'm really excited for our listeners to hear this great conversation. So let's go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Tom Davis as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Dr. Tom Davis, welcome to the Race to Value. I have to say, this is the one interview I've had in the last few weeks that I've been just so enthusiastic about because you're going to bring so much to our listeners. Tom, I sense you're not going to hold back today in telling us some secret sauce components to how do you build a successful Medicare Advantage practice. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks for being a, a friend and a colleague and welcome to the Race to Value today. Well, thank you. What a, uh, what a tremendous introduction. I hope I can live up to it. It's my privilege to be here and to, to serve your listeners. 
Well, Tom, I, I have to start with something that I just cannot get over, and that is your success as both a clinician and a physician entrepreneur. I mean, as a family practice doc years ago, you started a small three-physician practice in rural Missouri, and you ended up selling that practice in 2012 for $132 million dollars. Race to value listeners, I'm not making up that number. <laughs> Tom, you embraced early on Medicare Advantage, full risk, and accountability for total cost of care. And you built a practice that demonstrated superior clinical and cost outcomes. And I, I know a lot of our listeners are wanting to know a little bit more about that story and how you did that. And then also that exit for you is just so tremendous. And, you know, we're in a moment right now in 2021 where we have deal activity in the physician practice space that's just surging, unlike anything we've ever seen. I mean, PE back deals have increased substantially in the last five, 10 years. Private equity is driving that. One in five PE back transactions are primary care practices. And it's clearly a signal that investors are thinking about shifting to value-based care. I know Medicare Advantage is going to be a big part of that. And then you have groups like Oak Street Health that just went public and they have a $9.5 billion valuation. Anyway, lots said, but I know value-based care, Medicare Advantage, it's one of those business opportunities that seems to me it can be better for the patient, better for the doctor in terms of your own mental health and well-being and tapping into that sense of altruism of why you became a doctor. And it's great business. So I'd love to learn more about your story, your practice, and you know, just tell us how you got to be where you are today. Well, I would love to tell you that I'm a master of the universe and that I walked out of my residency program into the very first total risk uh, Medicare Advantage contract ever offered anywhere in the country, recognized it immediately, and then we all lived happily ever after. I would love to tell you that story because it makes me look really good. But in reality, it was just one kind of clueless uh, new residency graduate meeting an opportunity, adding a little sweat and shaking it up with some time and some affiliation with some phenomenal partners and really coming out well on the other side. But as I look from the end, Eric, the risk that we took in doing that was breathtaking and one that I would not take at this time. See, Medicare Advantage, value-based care, it is a spectrum. On one end, you have pure fee-for-service, where as a clinician, you're selling your labor based on piecework. And then on the other end, you have full risk or total risk whatever jargon you want. And that's where I, as the clinician, am accepting the full financial responsibility of a beneficiary's covered healthcare costs. And if you know I save money based on that budget, I get to keep the difference. If I overspend, it comes out of my pocket. And that is the spectrum of value-based care. Back then, there was no spectrum. There was just this brand new total risk contract, all or nothing, and um, my partners and I got wind of this contract being offered in our area. I was fresh out of residency. Our market was one of the central markets for the insurer. And we got wind that there were a number of other organizations that were looking at signing it. So we went ahead and signed it. And I can honestly say that we did not have idea one of what it really involved. And when the smoke cleared, we found out that uh, myself and my partners were really the only ones that had signed on to that contract in the area. And that was my first moment of clarity thinking, hmm, it's really never good to go first. <laughs> so I guess I better figure out what's going on. And really the first year or so, there wasn't any, any real difference in how we 
took care of our patients. Remember, it was brand new at that time. There was really no infrastructure going on. And I knew that this was somewhat involved with data. I mean, there was no risk coding back there. It was all based on compensation was based on demographics. So uh, after uh, a year or so, I called our insurer partner and asked to start receiving the quarterly reports that they promised us as far as trying to trace where the costs were coming, because we were doing okay with it. I mean, we weren't doing any better than regular fee for service. That's because our numbers were small and, and we were still trying to figure out what was going on. And one day, FedEx showed up at my little satellite office from our clinic with enough three ring binders. This is back in 1997, first quarter. There were enough uh, three ring binders to stack on top of each other and be taller than me. And those were all the printouts of all of the expense reports that the insurer had for all the patients just on my panel. I mean, there were thousands and thousands of, of pages and they weren't collated or organized. And so basically what I did is uh, in my spare time while well, watching my infant son, I also uh, started looking at the patients I knew that were spending the most money and finding out where their expenses were and, and seeing how we could uh, affect it. And one of the things that I saw was that our uh, hospital that we worked with, with was charging the uh, insurer a $256 access fee for x-rays. That's not a professional or technical component, Eric. That was just an extra charge that uh, the insurer was paying for that uh, service. And that was hundreds of thousands of dollars across our patient panel. So we decided to buy our own x-ray machine. And first we approached uh, the hospital partner and said, hey, you know, we want to negotiate this down. They said, no. And so, okay, well, we'll put it in there and we're going to buy our own. And they were our landlord. And they said, you couldn't, you can't do that based on our lease. Our attorney said we could. So we put one in there. And within a week, the outpatient x-ray department that the hospital had, had tumbleweeds blowing through it. And they called us up and said, hey, we're ready to negotiate. Well, it's too late. We already committed to six figures for this fancy x-ray machine. So uh, that really taught us the value of identifying these uh, areas of cost leakage and then internalizing it. Along the same line, we affiliated with another practice who had signed on at the same time for contract. I would go in there every couple of weeks for their quality assurance meeting at 6.30 a.m. every Wednesday. And that quality assurance meeting involved uh, a bunch of doctors, about a dozen of us, sitting around a table, believe it or not, with a stack of hundreds of signed referrals. And we would go through those and review them to see whether or not that referral was appropriate and whether or not that was a good use of money. And Eric, I, I spent like, go, I don't know, three of those meetings before I realized that that is absolutely not the way to manage these contracts. And even if it was, I don't want to spend my life doing that. So we started developing internal systems, which really respected the clinician's autonomy. And at the same time, clinicians mentored each other in what worked and what didn't. And the reason that we had to set up those systems was because at about the same time, I sat around a table with two of my partners and watched them sign five-figure checks. And in one case, the next year, a six-figure check back to our insurer purely for the privilege of having cared for their panel of patients. Today, that doesn't happen because the insurer will just debit it against future earnings. But back then, we just started out. We didn't have any reserves. So the insurer wanted their money. And you want to talk about a teachable moment. 
watching uh, your colleagues sign over their own personal money to cover a deficit, that really focused us and really allowed us to take it to the next level. So much so that five years later, I was on vacation in um, Jackson, Wyoming, and I made the mistake of logging on our system with the computer and checking my email. I don't know what I was thinking, but I did happen to see the financials for the contract. This is again about five years later. And I saw that my compensation for the year was going to be in seven figures. And that was the first time that had happened. And I kind of expected it, but seeing it like that really brought it home. And first was joy, mostly because I had helped understand the system, helped set up the system to make it work, and then saw the results. So that was very satisfying. But then the next was anxiety and choking fear. Thought, oh my gosh, there's no way that I made seven figures taking care of 350 Medicare patients. I am going to jail. So I called up the compliance person that we hired and I said, you do an external audit of, of my charts to make sure that I am compliant. I was. And it was at that time that I started to become interested in compliance and eventually became a, a certified compliance officer. But uh, after that experience, I was really committed to making sure that everybody did everything right and above board. And that showed that you can be incredibly successful assuming the financial risk for your patients as a clinician. And it also revealed just how much money was sloshing around the system and how much was being diverted away from those of us who created the value, who actually delivered the care. I felt like I was sitting next to a, a river running with gold and being able to just dip my finger in it. And it really kind of opened my eyes to the whole system. And after that particular experience, we really went all in in terms of internalizing our costs. We brought in some of our colleague uh, specialist partners. We built our own diagnostic center, our own cancer center, our own linear accelerator, added all sorts of service lines. I think we had our own surgery center. And then we got approved for a micro hospital. And the day after we got approved for a micro hospital, somebody made us an offer that we couldn't refuse. And so we went ahead and allowed ourselves to be acquired. Again, that was during the Accountable Care Act. And people forget that the Accountable Care Act was going to be funded 50% by reductions in Medicare Advantage. Up until 2015, the government hated Medicare Advantage and did everything they could to cut its funding. So we were facing a period where there was just not a lot of visibility there. So we went ahead and sold. And since that time, I started doing some business consulting around the country because Eric, during those 18 years when I worked under that contract, I felt like I was the family physician that I had always wanted to be and always trained to be. I was able to work with as much autonomy as you can possibly have in a third-party payer system. My staff and I had incredible systems. We had our fingers in every pie in the community. If somebody was about to get sick, I knew about it because I had my connections. It was just wonderful. It was everything I ever wanted to be about being a small town doc. And so what I wanted to do is take that knowledge and spread it nationwide. And uh, that's been my mission since. And I really appreciate the uh, cooperative's uh, opportunity to share it with the listeners today. Wow, Dr. Davis, great story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And I, I really appreciate the framing that you've done to set up the rest of our conversation. So I want to ask you a little more about your thoughts on fully delegated Medicare Advantage risk. And as a point of reference for our listeners, currently now we have a third of all Medicare beneficiaries, about 22 million people who are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans. And the CBO projects that the share of beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans will be about 50% in the next five to 10 years. 
So the enrollment growth trajectory coupled with the silver tsunami of the aging baby boomer population, certainly this makes MA an attractive business to get into for primary care physicians. And if they can do it well, as you've demonstrated, it's really a remarkable opportunity to have an impact in population health with rewarding economics. As a physician-led risk-bearing entity, it seems to me that once you pay for that compliance investment and the infrastructure that you need to operate in the program, it can be quite lucrative to be an MA and the patients tend to be very sticky. So MA plans really seem to be an area for consumer-centric innovation where certain health plans can offer members greater flexibility, inventive care models, and increased emphasis on economic value and unique benefit options, often while still being more affordable than traditional fee-for-service coverage. So the question that I have for you is, how do you see Medicare Advantage becoming more prominent as a primary risk vehicle for managing outcomes in senior populations? And can you share with our listeners about your Medicare Advantage playbook as a practicing physician and how it's able to provide enhanced care coordination, post-hospital follow-up, care planning, and help patients with things like medication reconciliation and mental health screenings? First of all, you hit the nail on the head. The beauty about this, about devolving responsibility for the financial consequences of the clinical decision down to the point of service, really unleashes the most valuable asset in the entire healthcare system, and that is the clinicians themselves. I mean, we are trained and we're predisposed to be problem solvers, to be advocates. And under fee-for-service, we're straight-jacketed in the CPT system so that, you know, there's a lot of shoulder shrugging saying, hey, you know, that's just the way it is. But if I am given a budget of $100 to take care of uh, this patient for one day, or it's a month to month, then really the uh, systems that can be developed are limited only my imagination. And that's exactly the secret to why I made more money than a, any family physician should on that sale was because my partners and I were able to collaborate into this works, that doesn't work try this, hey, try that, hey, this is what happened to me. That is the natural collaborative nature of medicine. And if you apply that to the actual system of delivering medicine, the value you unlock is enormous. Unfortunately, it also aces out all of the uh, middlemen. So the opportunity for them to make a buck is greatly diminished, which is why up until recently, there really hasn't been a lot of interest in Medicare Advantage. But in order to fully take advantage of the payment model, it's very important to understand exactly what the model is. The model in Medicare Advantage is to take the financial responsibility of the promised uh, beneficiaries' healthcare cost coverage and take it off of the federal government's shoulders and put it onto the shoulder of the much broader and deeper liability insurance pools that exist around the world. And here's how it does that. Back when we were first starting at Medicare Advantage, we did not have any stop loss insurance to back us up. I want you to think about that for a moment. I was taking the risk of up to, at that time, about 200, a panel of 200 patients, and I didn't have any net. I was walking across the tightrope with nothing to break my fall. If I had had a bad outcome just by the grace of God, uh, I didn't, but if I had a bad outcome, again, it would have come out of my pocket, and I saw that happen. 
a couple years into the system, you get more sophisticated, we all started getting stop loss insurance. And although stop loss insurance is a little more complicated than what I'm about to describe, basically it's that the liability insurer will compensate or reimburse you as the clinician after first hundred thousand dollars or so of of your loss on a given patient, they will pay 90%, they will pay back 90% of your losses uh, up to a million dollars, and then 100% of your losses beyond a million dollars. And that's just, again, that's very general. It's specific to every different contract. I'm just drawing that as something in general. So under that arrangement, really me as the clinician, I'm just responsible for the first $110,000 of losses of care costs in any given year for any given patient. And so when we talk about the clinicians or the organizations taking financial risk, that's essentially what we're talking about. We're not talking about the entire financial risk. We're talking about taking financial risk up to the attachment point of the stop loss insurance, plus any change in that insurance premium. That insurance premium is typically just a couple of bucks per member per month, and it does fluctuate on your experience, but it's not like healthcare insurance. It is uh, affected far more by interest rates and the availability of capital in the general pool of insurance. When the Twin Towers came down, and that was a, a multi-centibillion dollar event in the uh, private liability insurance pool. But if you looked at your insurance rates, your homeowner's insurance rates, and, and it really didn't go up that much. And that's because the pool of capital out there in the private insurance markets is very broad and very deep. And so what the government is doing with these value-based care plans is they are shifting the financial burden from themselves, not onto the clinician or the provider, only partially so. Most of that risk is onto these private liability markets. So you as a person, as a clinician or as an organization who is accepting these contracts, really need to wrap your mind around the idea that the catastrophic loss, oh, it's bad, but it's not catastrophic, it's just a loss. And so if you change your mindset, then you can start doing very realistic cost-benefit analyses for all the systems that you are adding. And that's important because fee-for-service medicine sucks your will to live as a provider, as a clinician. And that's why so many physicians before COVID were killing themselves because the system was toxic to them. Value-based care allows the clinician to practice in the way that they were trained to practice. And in doing so, it really unlocks the value of a lot of the potential of these contracts and really allows that clinician to minimize the loss up to the attachment point. So it's important to realize what these things actually uh, do, what their purpose uh, is, so that you can leverage their benefits. That's where the playbook starts is in understanding that. And that's that's actually one of the most rewarding parts of my consultancy is, is talking to the folks at the C-suite to make sure that everybody has a full uh, grasping of what it is they're getting into. Well, Tom, I think you make a great point about unlocking that value within this full risk contracting model by really speaking into why you as a physician would get into medicine in the first place. I mean, having that relationship, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. What also comes to mind is unlocking the economics that really drive success in uh, these full risk Medicare Advantage plans. And the STARS ratings obviously are very important when it comes to that. And I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. I mean, if you have a Medicare Advantage plan, you know, you're on a scale of one to five STARS. 
And if you hit that fourth star and you get to unlock the bonus and the rebates, it brings more funding into the plan. There's a lot of uh, quality measures like drug adherence and diabetics taking insulin that factor into the STARS rating. You have CAP scores, which are your member experience surveys or patient satisfaction scores. For the providers that are sharing risk with these MA plans, either capitated or like a percent of premium deal, when the plan gets to that four star, all those bonuses and rebates start flowing down in addition to what you're already going to get paid out downstream. So Tom, I wanted to just ask you and your experience with Medicare Advantage, what have you seen in terms of star ratings improvements for physician-led risk-bearing entities? Can you explain maybe to our listeners how the MA model doesn't necessarily follow the natural economic rules and that higher quality MA plans are actually lower cost, trying to make sense out of the STARS ratings and how that ultimately drives economic outcomes, but also improves patient care and creates a win-win for the health plan and the physician. In value-based care, there's really two measures of value. And you can see that in the spectrum that we talked about earlier. There's proxy value. These are measures that artificially relate or artificially define value that you get paid for. And then there's the true measure of value. And there really is only one true measure of value. Here's an amount of money to cover this expense. If you spend less to cover that expense, then you keep the difference. If you spend more, you've got to cover the difference. That's the only true measure of value. So when you talk about full risk, that is a pure value-based play. And that's the best expression of the system because it really unlocks all of the skill that the clinician has to try to unlock that value. It's very real, it's very tangible. Star ratings are an example of a proxy value. And when you look at that, the spectrum, the risk or the financial affiliations that run from straight fee-for-service to total risk, there in the middle, there are some shared savings where uh, we calculate how much it should cost you to take care of this, these patients. And we'll split the difference with you if you save some money, but we're not gonna hold you responsible if you don't. But there's just not as much upside to that. All the way to, hey, you know, if uh, you hit these metrics, we're gonna give you a little extra money for this metric, a little extra money for that. If you hit a star rating, you're gonna get a little extra money. Those are kind of steps in the pathway to full risk. In reality, a Medicare Advantage organization, the private insurer that contracts with the government, will get about an 18% boost in their revenue going from three stars to five stars. That is what the insurers are looking at. And if you're a total risk, for instance, the model I worked under is that our insurer got eventually settled in at 12% of the capitation and we kept everything else. So if there had been star ratings back then, then a five-star rating would have kicked up our compensation to uh, another 18%. So that would be good. And so you would want to kind of angle towards that star rating because it would increase your capitation. But in reality, I'm not impressed with metrics. And I really counsel the organizations, again, based on their individual contracts to assess where the value is being awarded to them underneath that payment arrangement, and then to adjust their systems to maximize that value, while at the same time pushing, pushing, always pushing towards getting to that total risk. Because in the end, those proxy measures of values are gameable and they change and you can set up a great system to really hit a given metric and the next year without any warning, it's gone. Your system is useless. All of that investment is wasted and you got to start over again. And truly the financial return on efforts like that really takes a hit. Whereas it, true value 
will never ever go out of style. If you do something, if you create a system that saves, that decreases expenses, that's always going to generate value for you. So as I talk to organization out there, I say, let me take a look at your contract and together let's find out where the most bang for the buck is under this given arrangement. It's usually a combination of true and proxy value. Let's create systems that are very simple, very straightforward to maximize your return on those systems. But let's continue to demonstrate our value and leverage it by continuing to push, push, push to get up the spectrum because that's where real value is and that's where real practice joy is. And that's where real uh, patient benefit is. Dr. Davis, I'm thinking about these physician-led ACOs, and we just recently released our analysis of the 2020 MSSP results, and consistent with previous reports, you know, these physician-led ACOs are performing better. They're, They're having higher PMPM. They're saving more. I think about the disadvantage, assume that physician-led ACOs are in, in comparison to hospital-led ACOs, because they lack capital and administrative firepower to spin up population health infrastructure and transforming a medical practice and building the necessary infrastructure to succeed in value-based care is expensive. You know, according to NACOS, the average cost to build a medium-sized ACO is $2 million. For those physician-led ACOs that lack access to capital to build their own infrastructure, many are partnering with MSOs for a more turnkey approach made possible through economies of scale. Uh, Health Affairs, for example, reports that nearly 40% of ACOs have a manager or a management partner, and two-thirds of these ACOs reported that the partner shared in financial risk or rewards. As far as I understand, you did not have an MSO partner or a capital partner when starting out uh, on your value journey. And so I'm, I'm interested, as you think about the infrastructure required for care management, for analytics, for all the things that are required, how did you pull that off in the early days? And what's the message that you'd give to independent physicians and physician ACOs? Today, ACOs are great ways to dip your toe into the value-based care system, but they're only that. You will never, ever learn to swim if you just stick with an ACO. And the reasons are clear. One is that that they're a trap. I mean, they're just like fee-for-service. In fact, that you're entering into an organization and instead of having the insurance company take the sweetest cream off the top of your compensation, the ACO management is. And whether or not they're actually delivering value in exchange for that is is a case-by-case situation. No matter what, the truth is, is that you're losing some of the value that you generate as a clinician at the point of care to uh, to the administration of these things. So my advice to organizations and individual clinicians that come to me is, you know, ACOs are great, dip your toe in, maybe see what the infrastructure looks like. But if you're not pushing towards true measures of value, then all you're doing is switching uh, one toxic environment for another. And uh, the response I usually get to that is, is that Medicare Advantage organizations are really not interested in small organizations with a small footprint. They don't even give us the time of day when we reach out for contracts. And the response to that is, that is true. So what you do is you target the smaller Medicare Advantage organizations in your market because they're more likely to listen to you. And you make sure that you affiliate yourself with accountable care organizations that have some sort of shared risk program. And you make sure that you connect at the insurer level, at the payer level, with those contracts so that just as an example, the Uniteds or Coventries that contract with you through that ACO know 
that you are doing a good job so that when they offer a new product in your area that allows you to accept more financial risk, something your ACO is not ready to take, you can go ahead and contract with them independently. And that's a path that I've seen many organizations take. And today, with the advent of the direct contracting entities, there is no excuse for you not to push your risk profile if you're interested. These people, all it takes is a phone call and they will do an evaluation. And that doesn't matter really what size your practice is, as long as you have a, a critical mass of patients, they are more than happy to work with you, get you on the spectrum of compensation arrangements and move you up. The short answer is, is that we bootstrapped our infrastructure. Now the tactic is if you have no value-based care experiences to affiliate with the best of breed in your area, find out through experience over a year or two, what it takes to succeed but always keep on pushing with the ACO and with the payers to take more risk, take more risk, take more risk. And if you want to go for it, if you know for sure you want to go for it, reach out to one of these DCEs and have them evaluate your practice and talk with them. They are more than happy to have that conversation. Well, Tom, I continue to be just wowed by the measure of success that you had as a small practice without a management partner, MSO. You mentioned you were paper, pencil, spreadsheets. Let's make it happen. You're obviously getting the premium dollar from the plan, but you were able to build, I guess, at a grassroots level, this infrastructure and unlock the value, the true definition of value in this type of financial arrangement that that created the success. And when I hear you talk about value, you're you're someone that comes at it from a different approach. I know a lot of executives, they're thinking around strategies for short-term revenue generation that helps goose the bottom line. They're looking at the expenses. Obviously, these are fragile business structure, but they're trying to drive profitability in the volatile environment, but they're thinking at it more as a, the mechanics of building business. And you seem to speak about value through the lens of the patient relationship. And that's something somewhere where I wanted to land in this next question is thinking about how you mentioned earlier about why physicians get into medicine and then they become a little bit disenchanted or jaded when they get caught up on the, the fee-for-service treadmill. But when your practice, when you were talking about your story, I mean, you found that piece, that sense of purpose, and you were successful also as a business person. And I just wanted to see if maybe if you could elaborate more on your definition of value in terms of looking at the patient relationship, having something that's less rent-seeking or transactionally driven or profit-minded. I mean, you're just doing right right by the, the most important thing in your practice, which is that relationship between the patient and the clinician and how focusing on that, maybe everything else just comes in tow. Can you maybe elaborate on that, Tom, in terms of how you value relationships and ultimately how that drives successful business performance and full risk Medicare Advantage? Well, in a value-based payment environment, the true driver of value is the trusting relationship between the patient and their clinician. There was a gentleman back in the 1940s who owned a medium-sized trucking company in Virginia. And he understood that the driver of value in his organization was moving things from one place to another. It wasn't in the, how many trucks he had or how many customers he had. What he did, what he provided that was of value was moving. And so he started to, to create systems to make moving easier. And he today is known as the father of the modern container system, which is why we have globalization. 
This is the same type of focused realization in healthcare, in these value-based organizations that really use true value as the measure of value, that's how they generate revenue. The driver of value is that relationship between the patient and the clinician, specifically between the patient and their personal clinician. And if you know that and accept that, then every decision that's made, every system that's created or altered must have a moment when it is viewed through that lens. And the question is asked, does this nurture the development of that relationship or does it harm it? If it nurtures that relationship, then we can continue to consider this new system that we're thinking about. But if it harms it or if it's going to be a barrier, there's a red button that you hit stop and you send it back for a reanalysis to see if it can't be re-engineered to prevent that. Everything, everything, everything in your organization wraps around the value between the patient and the clinician. And I, I'm going to give you an example. This is of a proxy measure of value, but it still demonstrates the point. At one point in time, I was going to get paid $50,000 if I got 95% of my patients to get their colon screening, either a colonoscopy or a coligar. And I was almost there and it was almost at the end of the year. There's always some holdouts. That's fine. And we had systems in place to contact these people to get them to bring them in. And the system reached a point where finally it was my personal phone calls and called once. That's usually where the system ends. But this time we were so close. I called this particular person two or three times and I knew her so well. It, I'd been her doctor for many years. So she and I had that trusted interaction, but I just couldn't get her to you know, smear some stool on a card and, and bring it by. So finally, during one conversation, I said, look, Here's what I want you to do. I know where you live. So the next time you have a bowel movement, call me. I will drop everything and drive down there and test it myself. There's nothing in the rules that say I can't do that. Well, she thought that was hilarious. She started laughing. She said, okay, if it means that much to you, Dr. Davis, I'll do it. And she brought it in. And that is the example of, you know, you certainly couldn't do that to somebody you didn't know. They would think that you were a weirdo. But in this case, since, you know, I had taken care of the family and them for so long, I had that relationship that I can leverage that. If they have that trust, they will allow you to curate their care and thereby both decrease their overall costs. And it will also, they will trust you earlier in the course of a problem. So you can identify those rising risks earlier than you otherwise would. And the organization is trying to replicate that with AI and, and data crunching. And there's some utility to that, but there is nothing that is more valuable than a patient who doesn't feel well, picks up the phone and calls you because they know that one, you're going to be accessible and two, they can trust you to do what's right for them. There is nothing that a patient wants more than to be able to turn over their healthcare decisions to someone they can trust and have confidence in. And that trust is not something that can be simulated. It has to be developed over time. Now, the contra to all of these value-based care systems is, hey, that puts the physician at cross-purposes, at moral hazard. The less care that he gives me, the more money he makes. And I don't like that. I don't like the doctor not having that conflict of interest. And the response to that is, hey, if someone else is paying for your health care, then there's someone somewhere in the system that has that conflict of interest. So the question I have for you is, would you rather that be the CEO of a large organization that lives in a multi-million dollar house and that's a thousand miles away that doesn't know you from Adam? or would it rather be your physician who you've met in person, looked in the eye, sized up, and can generate some experience with to know whether or not you can trust him? 
So if that's the case, then value-based care has a both a moral, ethical, and a functional advantage over every kind of healthcare payment system. Now, for those people who are leading these systems, the salient lesson here is to make sure that as you develop care systems to work through these payment models, make sure that developing that relationship is at the forefront of all of your care systems. And that is an anathema to a lot of these systems because a lot of these systems run by the industrial business model. They want the patients to identify with the system. They want the clinicians to be interchangeable. They want you to be a patient of the system. Well, there is the relationship between the patient and the system is going to generate far less value under these contracts than a relationship between the patient and the individual. So what you got to do if you're a leader in one of these organizations, you just got to bite your lip and start developing that relationship. In your mind, that's going to make one of your employees, the physician, have more power, if you will, or more authority in the revenue stream. But in reality, what happens is if you treat that clinician correctly and you allow them to get equitable share of the value that they're generating out of the relationship, they will love, love, love their practice environment so much and love, love, love their patients. They won't go anywhere and they won't threaten to leave in exchange for more money. They're not there to earn money. Money is nice. Money's validation. They got debts. I understand that. But the story they're telling themselves, their self-image is based on them being a hero, a rescuer, an advocate for their patients. And if you let them play that out and then let them be very transparent and let them know you're compensating them in an equitable fashion compared to the value they're generating, and you let them know that you're doing your best to generate as much value as you can, they're going to stay put. And that is the biggest hump for non-clinician leaders to get over as they transition from the fee-for-service to the value-based care is that understanding that your brand doesn't generate a lot of value. It's the relationship between your clinician and the patient. And your job is to facilitate that and then to leverage that relationship to generate as much value for all parties as possible. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, Tom, the relationship between the provider and the patient, that's the true currency, that is what's of value, and everything is driven, and you illustrated it with that great example of the colorectal screen and just having the relationship, knowing the patient well enough to prod that patient, engage that patient in a meaningful way to elicit the appropriate response to improve the care outcome and, and get the screening completed. I'm thinking about ways that you can foster this relationship, and one of the, the primary vehicles to do that is the annual wellness visit. I mean, this is a great time for physicians and care teams to really have a meaningful conversation with patients about their health and develop that physician-patient relationship. And it's not your standard physical or preventative visit. When you're seeing a Medicare Advantage patient, I mean, it's a great opportunity to discuss health concerns, other aspects of their health, their emotional and psychological well-being, giving the patient really the opportunity to talk about changes in their health status and how do they stay independent and connecting with the team at a personal level. And I remember when I was running running physician risk-bearing entities and ACOs and getting doctors onboarded. And I would just talk to some of these doctors like, hey, what percent of your senior population gets an annual wellness visit? And they're like, oh, it's in like 90%. And then when I looked at the data, I was like, no, it's, it's really like 30%. And it's eye-opening, but I just wanted to ask you, share some insights on the importance of the AWV, but then maybe also, can you speak a little bit about care management? 
and how that also works. And a lot of ACOs and groups are doing a lot of telephonic outreach and care coordination. And does that factor in or how do you really emphasize the provider interaction with the patient, the physician, with the care team, of course, but but really have a, a strong offering that you can really forge the outcomes that you seek with those patients through that strength and relationship? Well, the annual wellness visit itself is kind of an easy, kind of straightforward marker to kind of measure what's really not measurable, which is your engagement with your patient. And although, you know, it's nice to address all the health issues and do all the data reviews and whatnot, the real value in the annual wellness visit is that it allows you a structured excuse, for lack of a better word, to engage every patient on your panel at least once a calendar year. And your observation is absolutely right. I have worked with a organization that had a total risk Medicare Advantage contract, and they had some of their clinicians with annual wellness visits less than 30%. I was flabbergasted because they had the ideal construction, but they weren't taking advantage of it. So what you got to do as a leader or as a clinician, I mean, the annual wellness visits are a great metric and something that's very amenable to process, but don't let that become the be all end all. Use it as a reflection of the amount of engagement that the clinician has with their panel. And you got to mentor them and free them into going into the community so they can interact with their patients so they can develop those trusting relationships and those whiskers to sense uh, rising risk. And it's not just them. You also got to do it with their office staff. My office staff was plugged in. And when somebody, when one of them came to me and said, hey, this person sounded weird on the phone, or you know what, I was at church last week and so-and-so second cousin told me he saw this, well, let's get them in, give them a call. Do you think they mind if I come over lunch? I mean, that kind of stuff. So when I tell you that one year I earned $2.2 million and taking care of a panel of 356 patients, I wasn't just sitting eating bonbons and watching the newlywed game. I was out there all the time doing this kind of stuff, but none of it would have been reflected in a fee-for-service measurement of my value because I didn't bill most of it as fee-for-service encounters. It was mostly just getting in there, advocating for your patients and feeling alive generating value and getting compensated for it. That's an incredible feeling. And for, again, your organizations that are out there looking at this, I totally understand the short-term mindset. Everybody's got a gun to their head. They absolutely do not want a quarter where they're accelerating revenue growth slows or God forbid, go negative. But there is always room for a pilot. There is always room for some sort of considered R&D, for lack of a better word, a pilot program where you can get an innovator clinician, one of the 0.1% that really gets it and is ready to grab onto something new, get them, go to a payer and say, hey, look, I want to start this pilot, let's keep it small, but let's make it very valuable create the pilot, get the clinician on board and run with it and see what happens. And if it's successful, then you can start justifying, generalizing it. What is troubling me right now is that because of all the cost pressures associated with COVID and, and the workforce issues or whatnot, I'm seeing that most executives and leaders are not even willing to try a pilot. They're not investing in their R&D. And you and I both know that if you're a company and you're not investing in R&D, you're dying. You're just dying. And that doesn't just apply to the medium and large health system. That also applies to the multi-specialty groups who, even though they've taken a fee-for-service hit with COVID, are kind of sitting fat and happy and think that they don't have to change. In three years, you guys are going to be working for somebody. And that is not an exaggeration. A value-based care is here to stay. The government has no interest in shouldering this burden anymore. 
if you are not an owner of a patient or a patient population, if you don't have an ownership interest in that population, you are a center of cost. And you want to know what happens to center of cost? Well, go and check out what happens to the vendors who try to sell to Walmart. At the beginning, those vendors thought they had died and gone to heaven because they got their products in a thousand Walmart stores. But soon that executive called them up and said, hey, you got to shave a dollar off or I'm going to go with somebody else. And then they're going to get another call and another call and another call until their margins are so razor thin, they don't know what they're going to do. And absent going into the cash pay market, that is the only way you're going to be able to access this value-based care market. You got to at least look at a, a pilot now, at least, or else you're going to be left way behind. And these direct contracting entities are a really easy way to do that. You got no excuse not to do it. Dr. Davis, I love the vision that you've painted here. And I think back to my days as a practice administrator working in a small primary care physician office. And, and I think about the patient panel size that you know seven or eight clinicians have, and they've got two, 3,000 patients each. They've got to be able to do what you're suggesting they can do to have these relationships, but they, they're just too overwhelmed and they have too many patients. And so I think of solutions like Cheryl Lulius is the CEO of MHN. And it's an FQHC in Chicago that we interviewed earlier. And they capture SDOH data through a health risk assessment. And you talked about this is a well-known stat in healthcare that 80% of patients' well-being happens outside of the system, in the home, with the food they eat, the exercise they do or don't do, the education they have, the transportation access, all these things. And, and you talked about being able to see that you know, at a bowling alley or in church. And so how are primary care physicians supposed to be able, you know, maybe using a health risk assessment or other tools, what's your recommendation if we can't have the small panel size that enables and facilitates that type of interaction. What is your thoughts and suggestions along those lines? So first, you got to set reasonable expectations. I, as a clinician, with the credibility that I had, still had a limited impact on my patients. So the value that you do have with the credibility that you develop is being able to be there when they need you so that you can identify that rising risk as early as possible and you can mitigate the ongoing costs after the fact. So I had a focused patient panel of anywhere from 350 to, to 500 patients. And you know I lived in a, uh, in a medium-sized practice in a small town, so I had those advantages. But even if my patient panel was 1,000 patients, my reputation, such as it is, still would have been out there and still made people think when they were considering at least some of their healthcare choices in terms of being able to, to get in to see me. So I, I want to emphasize, and I'm not saying that this thing is going to make you a miracle worker. What it's going to do is it's going to allow you as a clinician to practice medicine the way that you've always wanted it to be practiced. It's going to allow each patient to have an advocate, to have a, a healthcare advisor that they can trust and have confidence in with all the value that that unlocks. But you know, you're fighting against a lot of other industries. You're fighting against big pharma commercials. You're fighting against the food industry that, you know, you get the patient for 15 minutes, the food industry is bombarding them with horrific advertisements for food that's terrible for them 24 seven. There's just no way you can fight that. You have to recognize that and limit yourself to making your practice viable 
to having as much influence as you can under that particular model. And then when you do have a teachable moment, you're much more likely to be able to intervene in a positive way than if you just saw the person 15 minutes once a year and say, lose weight. Nobody wants to go to the doctor. Okay. Nobody does. I don't want to go to the doctor. And I know, you know, most reasonable people just, they don't want to until they have to. So what these annual wellness visits are, is they're basically an excuse to touch each patient once a year. Now, when you get them in, you have to have a system in place in order to do all the data management that is required to get the appropriate compensation under these payment models. And that's a completely separate issue. That's actually very easy if you bother to do it. But if that's all you do during these annual wellness visits, you're really just wasting them. What you really want to do is connect with the person on a human to human level. And that's why it's good to do a lot of these annual wellness visits in the home if you can. Certainly, you know, if your compensation, if you're generating enough value, you can certainly justify that. Organizations offload these annual wellness visits to visiting nurses. They also try to do them by telephone. And, you know, I suppose that's fine for data gathering, although I question how much accurate data that you can actually get from doing those interactions at arm's length. As a clinician, I can get way more information from a patient if I'm face-to-face with them and they already know and trust me. I'm really going to be able to leverage that encounter from a data perspective much better than you know the telephone call or any of that stuff. That's the way you're approaching annual wellness visits. Your numbers might be 95% and good for you. That's great. But I would rather have the clinician who does 75% of their population in person than have the organization that does 95% of their panel remotely or with one of these visiting nurses. So the value in these annual wellness visits, it's very easy to get distracted by the fact that there's this black and white data that you need to collect. But the real value is in increasing and leveraging your relationship and heck, Use it as an opportunity to see if your spider sense tingles, that there's something going on with them. There's no more sensitive or specific test that you're going to find to denote rising risk. I don't care how much data crunching that you do. There's no more sensitive or specific test than you sitting across your patient and thinking, there's something off here. Then you got to trust your gut and go with it. That's what you do. And that's what the value of these annual wellness visits actually is. So doctor, I want to follow up this conversation we're having and talk a little bit more about risk adjustment as it relates to Medicare Advantage. It's become increasingly more important to reflect the burden of illness in a senior population to the highest level of specificity so that appropriate resource allocations can be made, both in terms of care management interventions, as well as the premium dollars flowing through the plan to support the population health needs. Can you provide a general overview of your approach to risk adjustment? And how does a practice implement coding documentation programs for MA patients with technology, capital, and staffing? And, and starting from scratch, you know, training doctors to understand risk adjustment. I, I'm just curious as to your approach. And, and finally, what are your thoughts on the providers that are being called out for exploiting it? Oh, Sure. Well, uh, let me share with your listeners everything that they need to know as clinicians about risk coding. I'm a certified professional compliance officer. I'm a certified risk coder. I've been doing it since day one. And I'm going to tell you right now everything that a clinician needs to know about risk coding in these environment. Are you ready? Ready. All right. Here it is. Nothing. You don't have to know anything about risk coding other than that it exists. 
Back when risk coding started, it was mapped to the ICD-9 system, which was very imprecise. And you, there were diabetes codes that reflected increased risk. And there were diabetes codes that did not, even though they both reflected the same illness with complications. It was very weird. There's a code for post-polio condition that didn't carry any risk, but there was also a code for anterior horn disease that carried immense risk, which is what post-polio syndrome is. So it was an art to figure out what to code and what not to code. Today, you got ICD-10. Soon, we're going to have ICD-11. It's very, very specific as to what conditions have risk and what doesn't. And clinicians did not become clinicians to become coders, data entry folks, data and analytics folks. That's not our core strength. And if an organization is using their clinicians to risk code in that fashion, they are squandering their sweetest cream. Every minute that a clinician spends doing a non-clinical task that sucks their will to live, takes them away from three minutes of building the relationship with their patient, which is what generates value. If you had a shipwright that could that was very good at building ships and was a craftsman and was just an expert in incredible demand, the last thing you would have them do is filling out paperwork. And that's exactly what you're doing with the clinicians. So from a clinician standpoint, all you need to know is that the system exists and you need to know that there is a list of conditions that the patient should be addressed. And these risk code clinicians aren't chosen at random. It's not a game show. They're the ones that are associated with increased cost. And they're, for the most part, not entirely, for the most part, pretty intuitive. And you don't have to go through the fine tooth comb and capture every last risk code. That is the way to madness. What you have to do you know, to be successful like me, all you need is to catch 80% of the risk. That's really all that you need to do. And I'm sure if somebody is seriously listening to this, I'm making their head explode because that's, you know, they're, they're having problems with that. But the reason you're having problems achieving high levels of compliance is that you're asking too much. You're setting your goals too high. Just let the doctor know at the point of care, this patient has CHF, COPD, atherosclerotic disease, chronic kidney disease. Just let them know that they have that and make it very, very easy for them to document the fact that they are going to either manage, evaluate, assess, or treat. Just make that workflow easy for them. But for the love of heaven, do not waste your clinician's time training them in risk coding or going into more detail than the basics about the risk coding system. They don't care. That's not a core competence. The only reason they think that they care now is because they're being told that they have to care. Don't worry about it. That is a challenge because it's a very objective system. And again, we're using the fee-for-service model is the industrial approach to, uh, to healthcare. It's very regimented, very system-oriented, very getting each step down to the, its essence and then moving on. Forget that, okay? In risk coding, make it easy for the clinician to identify the chronic problems that need to be addressed. Don't worry about the individual codes or whatnot. And then create systems that will engender a close relationship between the patient and clinician so they can touch each other when there's a risk for incurring costs. And then, you know, set up a process so you see the uh, patient once a year to help, to help engender that. But risk coding, I was the king. I was the god king of risk coding back in the ICD-9 days. In fact, the first time we added a, a Medicare Advantage organization to our, our typical stable, they did a, a audit uh, for us, 
And we scored so well on our compliance system, even though our risk scores were higher than average, that uh, I got a call to my medical director's office. And when I got there, I found out that this Medicare Advantage organization had hired an outside auditor, gotten into our office, got on our computers, locked us out of the rooms because they were concerned that we had gotten to their auditors and somehow bribed them to sign off on our audit. They didn't believe their audit results. They were so good. Well, their independent audit confirmed their own audit results, and uh, they never audited us again <laughs> because we did so good. Now, that's back in ICD-9 time, and then it was an art. Now it's ICD-10. It's a science. Don't worry about it. Free your clinicians from the non-clinical tasks. That's really your job as a leader is to stand there like Superman, let those non-clinical tasks ping off of your chest like bullets and protect your clinicians to let them generate the value that only they can generate, and they generate so well. Well, it's well said, Tom. I mean, really focusing again on that relationship, what's adding value, what's most important, that's the patient in front of you. Nonetheless, risk adjustment coding is, of, of course, very important to bring in more risk-based revenue into the plan, to code appropriately up to the highest level of specificity to make sure you're reflecting the burden of illness. But there's obviously a problem with that. If you don't have the relationship-mindedness that you do, and someone's just looking at the business of it, you know, they're saying, well, I'm going to focus so intently on code collection, but there's there's only so far you can do to document the disease that's already manifested and what's there. And then everything outside is, of course, non-compliant activities. So there's that diminishing return for the organization. Your reimbursements can't increase exponentially, but one thing you can focus on is limiting that patient's disease burden through that relationship, the care you provide. So as we land the plan, here today. I just wanted to think more about if you can only do so much on the revenue side of the equation, then it comes down to cost. And that relationship obviously can help patients navigate the system more appropriately. But there's this other aspect of making sure patients don't incur care that's valueless. You know, valueless care, low value care, just so wasteful. And, you know, I think our health industry right now, they're estimating uh, low value care overall to be 100 to $700 billion a year. So, Tom, um, as we finish up our conversation today, can you leave us some parting thoughts on how do physicians that are taking full risk and Medicare Advantage plans, assuming they've got the program set up, they're looking at social determinants, they have a risk adjustment program, they're engaging patients, creating relationships, then how how do they take that next step to really focus on uh, eliminating a lot of the wasteful care that's currently in the system? Now, the lowest hanging fruit clearly is inpatient costs. And there's lots of ways to try to manipulate or, or mess around with controlling inpatient costs. But the easiest way is to control inpatient admissions through the emergency room. And the easiest way to do that is to keep them out of the emergency room. And that's where the accessibility to the clinician comes in. But if they get to the emergency room, then it's important to have systems in place in order to try to block the admission to the emergency room. And if they get in the emergency room, it's important to block unnecessary admission to the inpatient level. Then that's a challenge unless you own the hospital because that goes to the hospital's bread and butter. It's not that they don't want, to want admissions. They just don't want admissions that last a long time and they don't want admissions that are going to come back. So you really have to work 
to make sure that your interests and your inpatient provider's interests are parallel. In my situations, they weren't. It was a source of continued conflict. In many integrated systems, it is, but the incentives are aligned, but the folks on the inpatient side are, are still very defensive because they feel a drop in revenue is going to reflect on them badly from a, you know, a business executive standpoint. So you got to make sure everybody's on the same page. But even if they're not, you can still develop those personal relationships that allow you to generate value. When we were doing this, we were also taking care of our patients in the hospital so we could control the hospital stays, but we also knew each and every one of the intake people down there at the ER desk, every one of them. And we also knew everybody at the personnel office in the hospital so that when a new person came to the desk, they called me. I didn't pay them off. I didn't give them gifts or whatnot. I was friendly. And I let them know that if they did this, it would help improve the patient's care. And since everybody lived in the community, they were even more interested in helping me. But honestly, all I did was reinforce a story of patient quality and care. So we all got to know and cultivated the relationships with these people at the front desk, and they knew we were available. So if somebody came in with a non-emergent medical problem, and they found that they were our patient by looking at their file or typing them up, the first thing we'd ask is, have you called your primary care doctor? But if you cultivate those personal relationships and you make sure the internal business relationships are as parallel as you can make them, then they're more likely to call you and say, hey, you know, I got Betty here. She's got a UTI. She's been throwing up. She's doing better after a couple of IVs. Normally, I would put her up for observation. She says she would rather not, you know, and I figured I'd call you and see. And then I would say, well, you know what? You uh, send her home with oral antibiotics. You know, have her call me when she gets home. And then I'll make sure she gets a call first thing in the morning and then give her all the precautions, blah, 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 if you think that's safe. And he does. And what he is effectively doing is transferring at least part of that liability for that discharge onto me. Anybody that owns a hospital, listen to me. Listen to this. The people coming in, the Oak Streets, the Village MDs, the other DCs that are coming in, they are backed by more money than you could possibly imagine. I don't care if a board member on your organization is on the Federal Reserve. These people got the money and they are going to break your monopoly on providing inpatient service, no matter what it takes. And you're going to be in the position of a Walmart provider. For the love of heaven, get yourself an ownership interest in a patient population and switch from making your money from delivering hospital care to making your money, saving those people some resources, and you will be facing a better world. Very difficult to do because there's not a lot of short-term reward but it's the people with vision that are going to be thriving five years from now. And I would love for that to be you. Well, I think that's a great way to end our conversation today. Dr. Tom Davis, thank you for joining us this week in the Race to Value. It's been a pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on, and I appreciate your good work.